Anyone else had a bad cold this week? Ooh, terrible. Catherine is not well. Um, Craig is not well, a bunch of others. So let's pray. Hey, what do you guys think of that? Let's pray. Let's pray. Are you in agreement with me? Engage. Father, we thank you that your word, chock and block full of the promises of the kingdom. The kingdom is here now. The kingdom is ours to inherit, to possess, to live out in all its fullness, in all its reality. One of those being divine healing. So in Jesus' name, as we agree as a community like this, we stop in the spiritual realm, the, the onslaught of the enemy uh, uh, with, this, with this virus. And we speak healing. Like we've already prayed this morning down in the basement, we declare healing, divine health over your people in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 All right. So if you've got the sniffles, resist it. Okay, we are on Acts chapter 23, if you want to turn in your Bible. Jean, it's so nice to see you. Jean is Grandma Mary's friend visiting from the UK. Uh, she's here for a couple of months. Um, I hope you brought a big coat and some serious boots, because it's free. Yeah, it's lovely to have you. The brunch yesterday was amazing. How many of you came to the brunch yesterday? Yeah. So good. It was, thank you, thank you. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite a lot of fun, actually. It's amazing. And uh, as it continues to grow, every, every time we've done it, it's, it's grown, which is amazing. Yesterday, we ran out of everything, <laughs> including hot water. We ran <laughs> which is a good sign. You know, when, when we're out of every, uh, most, most of the things. Um, and on that note, I want to say, this is, um, you know, as we increasingly, prayerfully and hopefully growing in our awareness that God is coming back for everybody on this planet and that we are the ones, the emissaries of, of God, that we live with, an awa- with that awareness that wherever we go on a daily basis, we are the ambassadors of heaven. It's a big deal. Who's excited about that? Yeah. And um, we were talking with uh, David and Patricia at the coffee shop on Friday about the, the various places in the world where you, where you preach and how people respond. So, in, in, in Catherine is completely different to me, and I'm sure everybody who's, who's spoken is different. Catherine, if anybody moves, she's completely thrown off. Nobody must say amen or anything like that. She's a, she's a teacher. She's, she's brilliant, like you know, at that. For me, the more people scream and shout, the more fired up I get. So I was, preaching, I was preaching about overcoming faith in the island. Sorry for telling the story again, but I was preaching about David and Goliath, and um, those were the days where I was kind of pretty violent, like the Old Testament. I was preaching about David slaying Goliath, and as he fell, I was becoming super graphic. And what, <laughs> I was running up and down, and, and I was enacting David as he, as he slayed Goliath, because the Bible says he ran up to him, right? And um, anyway, he... He hit him, and some scholars actually think that he didn't die. He was just concussed, and he fell forward because he had bad eyesight, and he was chronic pain, and he was because of his size and giant. But as he fell, David ran up, took his sword, Goliath's own sword, which is like a, a preach series for three years right there. Takes the enemy's own sword and chops his head off. At the stage when I came to chop his head off, literally everybody in the whole church was standing on their feet, right? <laughs> The guys in the back were screaming and jumping. <laughs> and uh, I chopped Goliath's like proverbial head right off. And I, I'm sure people were seeing it like vividly. And I lifted his head up 
And I said, you can stand against the armies of God, like David shouted. And people went absolutely berserk. They went berserk. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I forgot why I told you that story. So, so if you want to say yes, I agree, or you, you can do it. You, you're free to do it, all right? You're free to wave your shirts around. <laughs> for years we prayed for Kath's dad to get saved, and um, after a long time, he decided one day he's going to come to our church. It was the day when Finney and Easy, did you see me? We're introducing a new song called Pick Up Your Cloak and Run. And there was about, about I don't know, more than a thousand people with their coats in their hands. Some of the surfer kids had taken their t-shirts off. <laughs> Running around in a massive circle like a big cult. <laughs> Pick up your cloak and run. Um, and Catherine's dad walked into the foyer of the church. He's like, nope. <laughs> and he left. And this is why I remember now. So for us here as a family, in family space there's certain things that you can do that would maybe not be as appropriate in other spaces. Uh, you know, like, my kids are very loud. If you visited my house, you would have seen that. Julia in particular, super loud. When she gets home from work, if it's one in the morning, the party begins. And, uh, and the tenant underneath knows that and loves that, thank God. And, um, but that's in family. So this is a space where we can really celebrate the things of God. We don't have to keep a sense of piety and, and, uh, and kind of reserve. We could, we could shout. We could thank God. We can be free. But the brunch, the brunch is a time where we can invite our friends into like a third space, as they call it. Not your home, not the church, although it is the church. We're trying to trick them into it. Don't tell them. <laughs> but into a space where they can just share a meal with you. And, um, and, and a lot of people are doing that, and it's so amazing. So amazing. I really feel that is it's, it's, it's an easy way to live out this intentionality and this awareness that we live in a world that is desperate for Jesus. Uh, the philosopher G.K. Chesterton said that everybody's looking for God. Everybody. And it's so true. And he says, even the guy knocking on the door of the brothel is looking for God. Everybody's looking for that fulfillment that only Jesus Christ can bring. And we, you, say it, me, I am. We are the conduit to that becoming a reality. And so with that, I want to say that the carol, Christmas carol evening is always a huge success. I mean, the place is smashed. It's very, very full. And um, I'm super excited about it because just this morning, just to speak to two people, they are bringing their friends. So this is, honestly, everybody loves to come and sing Christmas carols at some point. Or a lot of people do. So... Take the opportunity now. And if you don't have the courage to invite someone, start praying for them. That always helps, you know, with everything. Start to just pray for them and invite them. Hey, say, hey, we're coming for Christmas carols. The cookies are free. Generally. Right, Debs? All the cookies are free. So we're not charging or anything. The cappuccinos are double the price to make up for the cookies. But don't tell them that. <laughs> not true either. But we have eggnog lattes. It's just an amazing time in which we stop and we worship and we celebrate God. So men... Thursday night, this coming Thursday night, 7 o'clock, we'll be here practicing, okay? We're going to sing 10 carols, 
Um, and I know a bunch of people aren't here today, but they already have the news, and it's going to be an amazing time as we celebrate Christmas together. Okay, sorry for that long interlude. Acts chapter 23. Thanks, Debs. It's, it's Debs' party trick. She's headed downstairs as well. Let's read together. I'm reading from N.T. N.T. writes uh, directly from his his biblical translation. It is the Bible. So this is Paul. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is a council of about 70 Jewish leaders, and they were always in conflict with the Roman with the Roman government with Rome, Um, and uh, they were they were political and they had agendas. And they had three predominant parties uh, among the, 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 the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the uh, other guys. Don't, I don't remember their names, sorry. The, um, where's John when you need him? Uh, the, um, no, not the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the... Um, the no, not the... Oh. Anyway, it doesn't... Oh, I can't remember. Not the Neocenes, no, but something like that. So there's Paul. He's standing in front of all these guys. So Paul looked hard at the Sanhedrin. Like the guy in Jumanji, one of his gifts is to stare. <laughs> That's Paul looking at the Sanhedrin. Okay, he goes away. He said, my brothers, which is interesting, he, do, he, does, he calls them my brothers. Now, historically, Paul might have even studied under Gamaliel with some of these guys that were on the, Pharisee, on the council because Paul was a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, which is already, in biblical context, just purely a, a status symbol. If you say you're the son of this or you're of Jesus of Nazareth, it, 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 it equates with it a weight that you're not just some joker that's walking off the street presuming stuff. And so he says, my brothers, I have conducted myself before God in complete good conscience all my life up to this day. What a statement. What a statement. So what I'm going to do, I've divided this chapter into three pieces. I'm going to read one piece, then I'm going to speak a little bit about it, read the other one, speak, read the other one, speak, and then we're done. Okay. So I'm going to try just to read this one through and then go back. So I've conducted myself. Ananias, the high priest, ordered a bystander to hit Paul in the mouth. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, said Paul to Ananias. You are sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet you order me to be struck in the violation of the law. Okay, I think what I'll do, I'll just, I'll just talk about that as we go along. So, Paul makes a statement as if he has been a perfect man all his life, and we all know that he has not been a perfect man, which really directly speaks about Paul's relationship with the, with the, the risen Savior, with Jesus. So he is a man that is, is walking with a clear conscience, obviously, otherwise he would not have made a statement like that. The, the Jewish law was structured in such a way, and it was... Um, it was, uh, what's the word, enforced, maybe not the right word, but it was appropriated through a sacrificial system. And so for you to be atoned or forgiven or to be free, as Paul is making such a radical statement right here, you had to bring a sacrifice. And with that, Ananias, Ananias was the high priest. Now, just for a little bit of context here, you can read, there are several scholars that write about this, it's very interesting. Um, and we, you, you will hear us quote N.T. Wright quite a lot because we, we like him. He's a really cool guy. He's very good looking as well. And, um, and, and, and he's, he's very accurate. I, I love how he, how he writes it. He says that there are two scenarios in which Paul could say such a statement about Ananias. One would be sarcasm. 
Because, you know, he said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Quoting Ezekiel 14, where the prophet speaks about these hollow walls, but they keep painting them white. But inside, you could literally just give them one little push and they'll fall over. And so Paul is either sarcastic saying, oh, you are the high priest, which, which, which very few people really believe in. I don't believe that at all. Or the second scenario, the possibility, is that Paul had a problem with his vision. How many have heard of that? Okay, so Paul, uh, Paul um, says to the Galatians, see, you, see the large letters I'm using to write to you, uh, is one thing. And he also says to the Galatians, um, you guys love me so much that if you could, you would give me your very eyeballs. Have you read that? It's in Galatians. Uh, and, and so that being in mind, and I think that even among us here today, there are those who, who uh, if you have to take your contact lenses out or take your glasses off, and stand in the back, and there's five of us standing here with white shirts, and we mix each other up, and we ask you to choose one of us, You'd not, you might not be able to do that. And so Paul's standing in this context with 70 people, it's about this size, and he might have misunderstood, but he, but he, says, but he, but he lashes out because he had, he had a vision problem, and some called this also the thorn in the flesh, as, we, as we've spoken about. So Ananias was the high priest, he was a super um, unpopular person. The Jews hated Ananias because he was the most corrupt high priest that Israel had had. had. And, um, and, and, and do you guys know what happened 70 AD to Jerusalem? Rome came in and flattened Jerusalem, including the temple. And Ananias was killed during that invasion of Rome and Jerusalem, 70 AD. Interestingly, he was not killed by the Romans. He was killed by the Jews. And they hated him because he was super corrupt. All the tithe and the temple tax that the, the Jews would bring to the temple was to be dispersed among the Levites and the servants. And apparently, this is according to scholars, he kept everything for himself. And he had a, a tremendous political sway uh, and the power to manipulate the Roman government to get his agenda passed. And so he's not a popular guy. And right there, he violates the law in opposition to the law. It's almost like, you know, the Bugs Bunny videos where you're sitting on a branch and you're cutting the very branch off. That's how N.T. Wright explains it. It's a, it's a brilliant analogy. He's sitting on the branch of the law, cutting the branch of the law off, and he's going to go down with it. And so this is the context to which Paul says, you whitewash stone, God will strike you. But, you're insulting the high priest? Asked one of the bystanders. And again, Paul, second time, my brothers, replied Paul, I didn't know that he was the high priest. Scripture says, of course, you mustn't speak evil of the ruler of your people, which is the, the, the premise of order in the kingdom of God. Romans 14 speaks about that, the importance of acknowledging authority. You might not like the person, but the, the, the authority that people walk in is what we, that, what we do honor. So Paul knew that one part of the gathering was Sadducees and the other part was Pharisees. And Paul had a brilliant uh, moment of, of wisdom and he said for the third time, my brothers, he shouted to the Sanhedrin, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and this trial <coughs> is about the hope, about the resurrection of the dead. Now, it actually was about that, because that's what Paul came proclaiming and preaching. It is literally the gospel, but he, proclaimed, he says this in a very clever way, because he knew in the Sanhedrin right here, there were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, did not believe that there was a, um, a spiritual realm. They believed like if you die, you die, and it's done. They didn't believe in the angelic host. 
And they didn't believe, definitely did not believe that God was spirit. And so there was this, this block. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in all those things. And they believed that the law was God's way of, of establishing his kingdom and his rule and his reign and, to where the, and how the kingdom would come. And so instantly an argument broke out among them. As these words, as, at, at these words, an argument broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were split amongst themselves. And so there was quite an uproar with some of these scribes from the Pharisee, Pharisees' party standing up and arguing angrily. And we find nothing wrong in this man suddenly. Suddenly the Pharisees said, whoa, there's nothing wrong with this guy. Whoa, suddenly. And so, because Paul said, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and what if a spirit spoke to him, or an angel for that matter, which was like rubbing salt in the wounds of the Sadducees, or in the theological stance of those who did not believe in the spiritual realm. And so the argument heated up, and in those days, they got super violent. They got very aggressive. And, and several times people would be beaten, stoned, and killed. And Rome, the governors of Rome, were always aware of this, of this potential uh, explosion among the Jews and their Sanhedrin. And so this is what's happening. It's escalating. It's escalating. And faced with another great riot, the tribune was worried that Paul was going to be pulled into pieces between them. And he ordered the guard to go down and to snatch him out of the midst of them to bring him back into the barracks. On the next night, the Lord stood by him, which is so beautiful. So beautiful. In Corinth, he was there. In, in, uh, in Athens, he was there. In, in uh, Jerusalem, he was there. He is there. And, 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 and here he is again. And the Lord stood with him and said, Cheer up. Don't worry, Paul. It's going to be okay. Don't worry, Paul. It's going to be okay. Those words mean a lot when you feel like you've come to the end of a journey and you're sitting in a cell and you think it's probably all over. You're not sure what's going to happen. And God said, cheer up. You have given me your testimony about me in Jerusalem. And then, and then Jesus made this declaration to Paul. He says, and now you have to do it in Rome. In Rome. So the story of Acts, according to some of the scholars, is basically a journey from Jerusalem to Rome. And this is the announcement by God for us in Scripture, that Paul is not going to stay here. Paul will never be a free man again, and he will end and die and in prison, but he will go to Rome. And the gospel and the witness and the word here, testimony, uh, cheer up for my testimony about me in Jerusalem. Now you have to, have to is the word, uh, is the word, is, is, is the Greek word martyr, which is like a declaration. And the, the, the interesting thing about Paul and in his entire life, he was always discouraged to go. Remember, Remember Agabus who came with, a, with took his belt and said, the guy who owns this belt is going to be tied up like this. Don't go, Paul. We beg you, don't go. Now I'm going. Because of the inner conviction of the kingdom of heaven. His friend says, don't go through that door, Paul. He, he went through that door. And, and here Paul, Paul finds himself in captivity, in prison. And Jesus says to him, cheer up. It's okay. You're going to Rome. All right. So Paul is quick to apologize here to someone whose office ought to be respected. He knows the law. He knows the scripture. It says that you will not speak evil of the rulers of your people. And Paul respects this office. And though clearly not the, the, the present holder of the office, but the, the office he does. And, excuse me. And then he, um, uh, let me just catch my notes here. Witness, witness, yes, witness done. All right, so let's continue in verse 12. Everybody there?
Acts chapter 23, verse 12. The next morning, the Jews made a plot together. This is such an interesting story. It's so amazing. The next morning, the Jews made a plot together. They swore an oath. These guys are zealous and passionate, bringing themselves not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Funny enough, nothing is ever said again about these guys because they must all have been dead. There was about 40 of them. And I wonder how many of them actually died of starvation. Probably not one. Anyways, there were more than 40 of them who made this solemn vow with one another. And they went to the high priest and to the elders. We have sworn a solemn and binding oath, they said, not to taste anything until we've killed Paul. What you need to do is this. Tell the tribune with the Sanhedrin, the tribune is the the Romans, with the Sanhedrin, the Jews, to bring him down to you as if he wanted to make uh, a more careful examination of his case. And then before he arrives, we'll be ready and we will dispatch him or we will slug him. We'll take care of him. And entered the barracks and told Paul about this. So, Paul called one of the centurions. So a little boy entered the, 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 Paul's sister. Who would have thought Paul had a sister? I mean, it's, it's quite random, actually. And then this little boy, Paul's, uh, Paul's sister's son, is so random. Now, in the culture, in that culture over there, remember there was no um, text, there was no telus, there was none of that. So everything was very much a cultural, a vocal, verbal um, Verbal traditions, as, as, as all of the Pentateuch was, was passed on verbally uh, from story and story, from one generation to another generation, it was a, a very um, communicative culture. And so some, by some r- random, we call it, I'm going to call it random now, but I'll bring it in context, this little boy hears this, the story of this plot, comes into the, into the barracks and tells Paul about it. Paul, because he's a Roman citizen, remember that from Acts 22, he has the right to summon some of the officials of the guard that he's under. It's, it's one of the Roman rights. Who would have known? Thank goodness for the scholars. And they tell us that. So he asked one of the, the guards, I guess, or one of the guys standing there, to go and, and call the, the boss and tell him about the story and make him aware of the plot of these guys who promise they're not going to eat until they've killed Paul. And so this has happened. So take this young man to the tribune, he said. He's got something to tell him. So he took him off. And brought him to the tribune. Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, he said. Apparently, he's got something to tell you. Now, he wanted to know everything about Paul, so he probably leant into the boy. and said, So the tribune took the young man by the hand, led him off to a private room. What is it that you have to tell me, he asked. The Judeans have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow, he said. It will look as if they're wanting to make a more thorough investigation about him. But don't do what they want. There are more than 40 men who are sitting in ambush for him. And they've sworn a solemn oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready right now, waiting for the word from you. So the tribune dismissed the lad. uh, And don't tell anyone at all that you've told me about this, he said. There's this TV show on the Discovery Channel called Jade, Jade, uh, Jade City. Is it Jade City? It's about jade miners somewhere in America. It's out in a very cold place. I've watched a couple of episodes. Quite, quite interesting. They find these boulders, and then they cut the boulder in half. It breaks open, and inside is jade. And they sell the jade to people for millions of dollars. Anyway, long story short, they had to take one of these massive boulders to a, to a place where they're going to drive this truck for 12 hours 
monster truck, the wheels as high as the roof, get there, and from there they're going to drive another two hours to a, to a place to sleep overnight and then come back the next day. So they were so exhausted, so the, the son of the lady who owns the, the jade mine uh, was, was driving, they swapped drivers, and he sat in the front next to the other guy, he became super tired, he climbed over the seat, lay flat in the seat, as he lay flat in the seat, he said he just fell asleep, and the guy behind the wheel fell asleep, the car rolled the truck into the bush, crushed the place where he was, sit- was sitting 10 minutes before, and he would have surely been dead. What do you call that? What do you call that? Providence. That's what they call it. They call that providence. Providence. And Paul is literally walking into a space here of God's divine providence. Okay. In nine, uh, long time ago, we were, we were in Mozambique one year, and we were dropped in by an airplane, and very soon afterwards, we got caught by Renamo. Renamo was one of the faction groups. There were two for Lima and Renamo, uh, guys with machine guns, motorbikes. We heard them miles away. We were very scared, and we were praying but they found us. We didn't know if we should hide because they might shoot us. So Kia stood up and walked out from behind where we were hiding. I didn't jump up immediately. I wanted to see if they could shoot him. <laughs> Jokes. <laughs> Jokes. <laughs> don't, don't put this on the internet. Anyway, they caught us. They tied us up. Lots of screaming. AK-47s in our faces and, and literally in our mouths and, and uh, horrible words and screaming in Portuguese, which I didn't understand. Um, I didn't have Kayla there to interpret but, but they tied us up on the back of motorbikes and they drove for seven hours. I was so, so exhausted. Absolutely dead, 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 dead tired. Tied up on a motorbike. You can't hold on. You can't compensate. It's just, it was, it was horrible. And n- not knowing what was going on. And they, and they dropped us providentially at a, at a, at a, at a little center, like a little, a little basically a, a hut, a big hut room. And there at the room was a nurse, uh, and she was nursing all these people. They were in the middle of a massive drought, in the middle of a massive war, civil war, and uh, literally hundreds and hundreds of people dying daily around us. It was terrible, terrible. And there they left us. And uh, we didn't really know what was going on, and I'll be, just be very honest with you. At first glance, it looked to me as if we would completely failed. I was a young man with a, you know, I just wanted, you know, like, you know, with great passion. And it, and it seemed as if we were caught, we were left, we were not sure what was going on, but very soon we realized that all of this big mess was God's perfect plan for his gospel to be revealed. Now, I, I want to ask you to, to, to look at this chapter and to look at Paul's life in, in such a light. In such a light. Because Paul will no longer have the space to determine how he would live and how he would follow Jesus. He was in confound. He was, he was tied up. And there we were in this place where we saw miraculous healings, where we baptized over 300 people in a mud pit because there was no water, so we slopped them under the mud, um, where we preached the gospel to many, many soldiers for Lima and Renamo, and, uh, and, and were able to become a part of what God's heart was for a dying nation for that time because of providence, God's providence. God's providence. And if we do not see this in Paul's life right now, we will just read all this stuff and it will find no root in our own lives. 
there will be no soil bed in our own lives. So we can take our lives and see, wow, this is, this is the context in which Paul lived this reality out. And this is perhaps where we might find ourselves right now. Some people call it providence, other people call it coincidence. Okay? My dad would never call it a miracle. He would say, oh, that's a coincidence. So um, the Archbishop William Temple said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I stop praying, coincidences stop happening. <laughs> so nevertheless, Paul's life was saved by a little boy who somehow overheard a plot. Call it what you want. Paul is now is not dying today at the hand of, of the zealots, but will travel, travel under the strong escort of Rome. When we get to the, to the next piece of thing, you'll see this. you see it's absolutely amazing. And there's a wonderful lesson to learn in this uh, splendid story, uh, and, which I've just explained to you. Um, yes. Done. Next one. I'm working backwards. No good thing, the psalmist says, will the Lord withhold from those who live uh, an upright, upright life before Him. And that doesn't mean that the bad things will never happen to good people. Okay? If that's your philosophy in life, your theology is wrong. Absolutely wrong. You have a prosperity mindset. It doesn't work. It's ungodly. It doesn't mean that bad things will not happen to good people or that good people always get what they want. That's not true. I wanted a pink VW when I was a, just a born-again Christian. I named it. I claimed it. I found a picture of it. I printed it. I put it on my wall. I put my hand on it every day saying, Thank you, Lord, that this beetle is mine. I never got it. Never, ever got it. I did get something much better. I got a 1952 oval. Do you know how rare those are? And it was black, not pink. Anyway, thank God. It doesn't listen to everything we so name and claim. And that certainly isn't true of many of the Psalms. You can read the Psalms to look no further, also declare as an act insisted, insisted on. Uh, anyway, so the, the motivation here for me with the providence of God, is, is, is pray. 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 That's why we get together, to pray. We seek God. We, we seek Him. Is there danger? We pray. Lord, let it be, let it be averted. Is there, is, there, is there bad intent or, or malice? We pray, Lord, let it, let it fall apart. Is there temptation? We pray. God, give us strength. Um, Paul, um, uh, Pete Scazzera describes um, those who pretend like hardship does not happen, as those who are superficially spiritual. It's a superficial spirituality that will never bring us to a place where we are broken and ground so that God can actually make something out of us that is substantial. And we are trapped into an old mentality. And the new wine only comes into the new wineskin, and Jesus perpetuated that over and over and over. So when you find yourself in a hard place, Say, ask yourself, is this the providence of God and how can I move forward in this confined place and see what God can do from that place? And it starts and it ends with prayer. I'm convinced of it, absolutely. And always, not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. Not my kingdom come where I am the king, but your kingdom come. And sometimes that cannot, it will not move based on your feelings. I feel this. I feel even the Lord say this. If it's contrary to Scripture, those times we walk very quietly with what God is saying and we hold on to what God is saying. Even though the circumstance may not change. Because of verse 23. So the tribune summoned two of the centurions. This is huge. Get ready a squad 
of 200. He said, they're going to Caesarea. Take 70 horsemen, 70 horsemen, 200 lightly armed guards, and they leave at 9 o'clock tonight. Paul was used to traveling at night. That's how he mainly traveled, under the cover of dark. Get horses ready for Paul to ride and take him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter which went like this. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews who were going to kill him. When I learned that he was a Roman citizen, I went with the guard and rescued him. What does that sound like? Felix is like, that's all me, man. But Felix was a slave. This is this by the side. He was like, anyway, he was not a generational ruler. He was a slave boy and worked himself, him and his brother, up to uh, this place. And the man was seized. And when I learned of the Roman citizen, I went to a guard and rescued him. I wanted to know the charge on which they were accusing him. So I took him into the Sanhedrin. There I discovered that he was being accused in relation to a dispute about their law, but that he was not being charged with anything for which I would deserve to die or to be imprisoned. I then received information that there was, a, there was a, the plot against him. So I am sending him to you at once. I've told these accusers that they must inform you of their charges against him. So the soldiers did um, uh, what they were told, and they took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day, they allowed the horsemen to go on with, with him while they returned to the barracks. So the 200-foot soldiers, likely on foot soldiers, would walk with Paul through the night until the morning. They turned around, they came back, and 70 horsemen took Paul all the way to Rome. The company arrived in Caesarea and handed over the letter to the governor, presenting Paul at the same time. Felix read the letter and asked which jurisdiction Paul was from, and he found out that he was from Cilicia. And I will hear your case, he said, when your accusers arrive. He ordered them to be kept under guard in Herod's uh, praetorium. Praetorium. All I have with this little piece is simple. When we lived in the islands, one day Levi and I were swimming in front of our house and a guy with a boat with two little boys on it, a little, a little um, a laser. Do you know what a laser is? It's a little sailboat. Uh, came sailing with lots of screaming and carrying on, and we were in the water swimming right in front of our house. There was a reef in front of our house, and uh, the guy came with this, this laser flying, the wind at his, at his left, and he was literally flying onto the reef, and I shouted, you have to tack, or you're going to hit the reef. There's a reef. And, he, and I could see he was like, dun, dun, dun. the next minute the boom swung around, almost killed these two little children, but they ducked, fortunately, and, and he was ripped backwards onto the reef, and the whole boat fell onto the reef. So Levi and I swam out, we took the boat back up, and um, we lowered the sail and pulled it out. And we met who became Levi's best friend on the island, a little boy called Max. Max and Levi, this is not Providence, I'm, this is just coolness. Uh, uh, Max, Max and Levi became close friends. I don't know if you see that, ever seen that half-moon scar on Levi's face. Max was so naughty, oh my gosh. Him and Levi were running anywhere, everywhere, wherever they were running, and Levi ran into a pole. It was with Max. And Max came, Yaku, help Levi! So anyway, long story short, this guy, Simon, the dad, they were from England, they were there, they moved, they bought a house in the islands, a fun house. He owned the rights to a book called Watership Down. Anybody ever heard of that? Watership Down. He had bought all the rights, and Richard Adams was the author of the book. 
And for me, in Watership Down, because now we heard about Watership Down, we got a copy from Simon, we were reading. They, it was basically a very melancholic, quite a, quite a depressing story at times about rabbits. Right? Rabbits. Correct me if I'm wrong. How many of you have heard of it? Read it? Oh, wow. Cultured bunch. Anyway, what did they call cars in Watership Down? What did they call cars? Anybody remember? They used to call them radrads. Radrads. That's what they called cars. Because that's what rabbits would call a car. Now, radrads, when they spoke about it, was they were petrified and angry and, and like very cautious with radrads. Because radrads represented death. They would be killed by the cars. And one day, the main character in Watership Down, his name was Hazel. Do you remember that? A male rabbit called Hazel. Nevertheless, uh, he got lost. He got lost. And a man from very far away in a rudrud found Hazel and rescued Hazel and took Hazel all the way back home. So when Hazel got home, he told all his friends that a man with a rudrud saved his life. Paul, <laughs> Paul, this is so good because N.T. Wright wrote this. <laughs> Paul is literally Hazel. And the Rudrad is the Roman Empire and the Roman army. And Paul finds himself in this fearful, everybody feared the Roman rule. But somehow, Paul is safe and insulated in this space. Why? Because of the testimony of the kingdom of God. And God's promise to Paul to end up and to stand in front of the greatest world power, Rome, and proclaim the gospel. That's coming towards the end. It's quickly going to speed up now. 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. And we're done with Acts. But this is Paul. The Romans have taken Paul. They've insulated him from all Jewish oppression. And they've taken him to Rome. And this is the end. That's where Paul finds himself in Rome right now. Amen.